Good. We'd like to request your attention for some considerations and practical matters in our exercises. Um, one of the famous uh, parts of Kayanupassana, of body contemplation of body, is mindfulness of breathing. Um, there is a slight tension there in the text. I have mentioned this before. Um, if we consult the Anapanasati Sutta, then the Satipatthana refrain, the refrain on the four foundations of mindfulness, is uh, considered to be a subset of mindfulness of breathing. If we consider the Satipatthana texts, then Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, is a subset of Satipatthana practice. So both of these differing teachings claim the respective other teaching to be part of their um, structure. Um, in terms of Satipatthana, which is what's going to uh, largely preoccupy us here for these last two weeks, is the, the Anapanasati part is one of six dimensions of contemplation of body and probably the most important one. Um, just about every every of the Buddhist tradition has somehow found a way to make breathing contemplations to be a mainstay of their particular vehicle, of their particular meditative approach. Just, there are many reasons for that. Some, some have to do with the uh, physiological singularity of the breathing process in human bodies. Um, beginning with the fact that we completely depend on breath, that uh, this breath is both something that is capable to be directed by our voluntary nervous system, in other words, we can control the breathing, and in fact we do control the breathing probably to a larger extent than most of us are admitting. Um, at the same time, the breathing is perfectly capable of functioning without voluntary control. Um, there is probably not any other body function that can be in the same way controlled and in the same way forgotten about and working on um, in an unhindered fashion. If we don't control it, I would not know of any other body function. So breathing happens in a range of frequency which is understandable for the human mind. I cannot even though I can feel my heartbeat, I can't actually listen so closely to my heartbeat as to discern, say, a murmur or so. Simply because whatever happens there, <clears throat> systolic and diastolic movement of my heart happen at the, at the rate I can't, with this particular human brain, pick up. So I have to live with the consequences of this, but I can't actually pursue or trace this. However, breathing at the frequency of about 15 times a minute happens to be in a range that I can very well follow. I can learn an immense amount about the state of this particular being by attending to its breathing patterns because that happens to be within a range that is perfectly uh, perceptible. Um, Breath is both a vehicle for samatha, it's an excellent tool for stilling the mind, traditionally considered to be the, the royal road uh, to the stilling of thought. Um, 
And at the same time, it's a powerful insight uh, vehicle because in every moment of breathing, uh, I encountered a lakanas. You know, in my dependency on every breath, I encountered a lakana of dukkata, of the characteristic of conditionality and of dependency. In other words, one aspect of dukkha, the sankara dukkha, is obvious in my dependency on breath every moment. And if I connect with my breathing, if I connect with what leads to that process and my dependency on it, I immediately connect with that hallmark of existence that is called uh, insatisfactoriness or contingency. The coming and going of the breath teaches me about impermanence very powerfully. And the elemental quality of that breathing, the exchange of O2 and CO2, um, speaks of, in some way, a profound impersonality of that uh, process. So I have, with one in-breath and one out-breath, I have all the three of the characteristics right there. Huh? Dependency speaks of dukkha, coming and going speaks of anicca, and the element, the elemental nature, the profoundly uh, non-personal element quality of what keeps me alive and what makes it possible that I continue being, um, is speaking to me of uh, anatata, of the emptiness of an intrinsic personality. There's nothing essential there about the, the, the air I depend on. It's air that has been with other people and it's not my air, not even when it completely is in my bloodstream, uh, it is not mine, truly. Hmm? It doesn't bear my stamp on it. So in many ways, traditions, cultures have understood the profound, the powerful uh, symbolic charge that is in, in the breath. It is the breath that unites us, it's the breath that connects us. Even through your worst enemies you're connected by sharing the same breath. We're all inhabiting this delicate biosphere. makes our lives possible and in some way it wafts through us every minute a few times and it is that little gentle movement that in some way reminds us both of our connectedness but also of our vulnerability and of that which is vitally important to us is not what we own or can protect or can appropriate in some really existential way, but we depend on things that come and go. We don't perfect the in-breath so that we kind of stop doing this after having finally perfected it. Yeah. 20 to 9, Akinjano finally perfected his last in-breath. Yeah. The ultimate in-breath. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. And then there's an out-breath just shortly after, otherwise he's dead. Yeah, so the idea of getting it just right is, is not really holding much water when it comes to breathing. It is something that tells us we have to surrender to this, isn't it? To so the vulnerability in receiving, not sure, is there enough, is it right, uh, where has it been before? Um, will I get 
the next one, if I let go of this one, I have to let go of this one because it has fulfilled its job, it has nourished its body. And now an exhalation is needed. I'm not having any guarantees that this is well received. I'm not having any guarantees that there will be a continuation of this. Yeah. And so every moment of my in and out breathing, I'm practicing the skills of letting in and letting go, letting in and letting go. And it seems on a profoundly symbolic level that this movement has something to do with our life. That strangely, my constriction around breathing, my control around breathing, my uh, interference with the natural flow of breath has something to say about my interference with the flow of life yeah, in my existence. So the more you kind of familiarize yourself with what's happening when you breathe, in many ways you will familiarize yourself with what's happening in the way how you hold yourself in the process of living. It's very likely that something about how we live and how we hold ourselves in this, in the ebb and flow of life, in the receiving and the letting go of things that come to us and that go away from us in life, this will be manifest in the way we breathe. It takes our breath, or we hold our breath, or we 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 breathe very flatly, or we take a deep breath, or we really let it in, or. We gasp. Language tells us very much how we respond to events in life by mirroring these events with the way we breathe. So it is no wonder that meditative traditions have understood connecting with that process of breathing um, is doing something very profound. It affirms us uh, an, an immense capacity to metabolize our our environment, yeah, our kind of metab- metabolic wonders. And breathing is uh, probably one of our most dramatic ways how we metabolize our environment. In fact, you know, we're not alone in this. Just about every other creature exchanges a few sorts of gases, even though they may not do oxygen breathing proper. But just about every little bug or every little thing would hard brown eyes somewhere out there is going to exchange some form of gaseous uh, little narrative with its environment. So we we sense in our breathing both our vulnerability and our strength. We sense our sensitivity, dependency and our power, our trust. And there is no other way to do this good than to surrender to this. No amount of control of breathing will do a better job than complete surrender to the function of breathing, to the trusting, giving away the breath that has just nourished you, emptying out. And the deeper you can empty your lungs and let go of that breath, the deeper your next in-breath will be able to be metabolized. So there is a profound message there. And this letting in and letting go and letting in is uh, profoundly symbolic of so much of the things that um, create happiness in our lives, create connection in our lives, create participation, you know, create, in a deep sense, belonging. So by uh, practicing in and out breaths, we're actually not just breathing air, you know? we're, breathing, we're breathing ether, basically. We're breathing sky. We're breathing 
vitality into us, quite literally. And acknowledging this on a moment-to-moment basis, rather than taking it for granted and chasing our ideas, is uh, something that makes us more aware of the ground we stand on, of the heartbeat that sustains us, of um, the beings that share the same air with us. So uh, there is a good reason to make friends with this practice, to make friends with connecting attention with the sensations that arise from that breathing pattern. It's something we always have with us. It's something that is always taking place now. And it's something that teaches us the great movements of accepting, welcoming, letting in, and letting go, releasing, opening out. These are grand movements. Much of other things in your life will will entail these kinds of movements. How you are with people, how you are with the, you know, with the fortune that comes your way, be that fortune just accidental or be it a good fortune accrued through meritorious activities. Um, If we do not allow ourselves to, to yield and surrender into that movement, then we will be eternally protecting our spaces, a fictional little corner of the universe in which I have to say, in which I can um, enact my little narcissistic grandiosity and continue to maintain the illusion of separateness. An illusion which is, uh, A, hard to maintain because it's what it is, an illusion, and all all illusions are taking a lot more work to maintain than than things that actually happen. Even things that happen are hard to maintain, yeah, because they tend to crumble. But illusions are even harder to maintain because they have no basis in validity. So connecting with the breathing connects us with the rest of the world, connects us with others, connects us both with the strength to metabolize and be part of and reconciling with the vulnerability and the dependency that is manifest in our need for breathing. That teaches us something not just about life and about body sensation, but it also teaches us something about how to live with this, you know, how to live at this perilous, precious, delicate, amazing space where we're completely vulnerable and very strong at the same time. So try to make a friend of your breath. Try to use your breathing as a vehicle that connects the body and the mind. The principle of Buddhist mind training hinges squarely on this vehicle. It is the way, it's easier to still the body. So that's why we start with the body. We choose a posture that is upright, low maintenance posture aligning ourselves with gravity. And then uh, when the body becomes still, the breathing of this body begins to slow down, begins to soften, begins to be less hard and labored. And if we place our attention in a gentle and persistent way onto the movements of that breath, and I'm speaking of the movement of the sensation, we're not actually following the air in and out, if we place our attention on the movement of the sensations connected with breathing, 
a breathing that becomes softer and more regular and more subtle, then the quality of mind becomes more subtle, more soft, because that is one of the little miracles that we make use of. It's one of these everyday miracles we depend on, namely that the mind begins to resemble the things it intends to. And we can cultivate a climate of mind that is in a way in, correspondent to the qualities of the things it seeks out. So if the mind, with the help of attention, seeks out the object of breathing sensations that become softer and softer, rhythmical, deeper and deeper, then this quality of softness and deepening will go over to the mind. So it's attention connected with sensation that produces a climate of mind that begins to resemble more and more the object of the attention. This is so simple that we almost not dare saying this. Now, there's a kind of mimicry taking place that the mind begins to mirror the stuff it attends to, it seeks out and it preoccupies itself with. Now since we have a say where this attention goes as meditators, we learn this, we're trying to strengthen the capacity of the mind to focus attention, deliberately bestow attention to things we deem to be useful, appropriate, effective. And since we have a say in what gauge this attention takes, you know, small and focused, big and stable, spacious. Since we have a say in where this attention goes and what it does, we begin to have a say in the contents of our experience. And since we choose something that is soothing and pacifying, tranquilizing, making, potentizing the mind, we begin to have a direct way into cultivating states of mind, rather than just being at the mercy of our sensory function and at the mercy of our conditioned reactiveness to, towards sensory function. We begin to have a subtle but increasingly noticeable modulating effect on the mind's climate, on the mind ground, on the mind's capacity to hold, to be with, to relate to, to respond. So while on one level this may sound like a simple exercise, just identifying a place in your body where you find it most easy to feel the breath come and go, and then you're trying to stay there. And if you notice that the mind goes away, you tend to come back there. There is no question of how often you do this. That is not important. It is not important whether it took you um, you know, 12 months to start walking or whether it took you 36 months to start walking. Yeah? All of you have walked in here. All of you have learned how to walk. It is not really very important how long it took you to learn that. Whether you were statistically uh, an early walker or a late walker doesn't really matter much. Important was that you kept going until, this was until you had success in this. Even if it had taken you five years to do that, frankly, it would have been worth it. Yeah. So the same holds true for establishing mindfulness of breathing, being able to connect the attentional focus of the mind with the sensations arising from the breathing pattern. So we try to really learn this. 
We try to identify more subtlety in these sensations. We try to follow their process nature. We try to be very refined. We try to get bigger and hold the whole thing in one moment. Yeah, we can do different things, but in the the basic pattern is I learn to bestow my attention to that process of felt experience that this body being here, this soft animal here, is breathing. When I notice that my mind goes somewhere else, thinks as it is expected to, plans as it is very likely to, reminisces, comments, criticizes, grumbles, as minds are just want to do, then uh, you make an agreement with yourself to bring back the attention of mind to the focus of your breathing, to the anchor of your breathing, where you have decided that you want to attend in the body to your breathing. Te technically, these are a number of areas where uh, this seems to be most easy. Belly is one, chest is one, nose is one. Some traditions insist that the nose is the, um, the uh, place to be. Some traditions equally passionately insist that the belly is the place to be. Truth is, both of these places have a lot to, uh, have a lot to offer, slightly different ones. Um, truth is also the Buddha has said neither. <laughs> so the oldest of texts do not stipulate which particular area you should attend to, um, which usually means that uh, subsequent generations of um, disciples are all the more passionate. Everything that the Buddha has left open has given rise to passionate factions that champion this particular cause or that particular cause. And sometimes it's necessary to smile a little bit at this and see, uh, go back to the emphasis the, you know, the, the teacher has actually laid on this practice. In his vision, it seems to be quite clear that it doesn't matter. What does matter is that you do try and that you identify such a place and that you connect with that place in a consistent manner. So I sometimes speak of plan A and plan B. Plan A consists of knowing what your particular meditative exercise is. This would be Anapanasati now. Where are you doing this? This would be your decision with the belly, chest, the nose. Or maybe another place you find most easy to associate with the uh, breathing movement in the body. If you have any doubts, just go for the belly, simply because it's the biggest. It's um, a good half a meter away from the major meditative hindrance, yeah? uh, because it's uh, closer to the center of gravity, yeah? and usually because there is more moving there. Yeah? So if you identify an anchor of breathing movements in your belly somewhere, and it means that usually this is bigger. And sometimes the nose can be a bit small. So since all our senses are, many of our senses are already in our head, and now we're going to squeeze our poor attention into the tip of our nose, that may make it a little sort of heady, this whole proceedings. And since embodiment is one of my creeds, and um, I believe one of the crucial needs to make this practice successful, uh, it is probably safer to use the belly if you are having any doubts. However, the nose has a few advantages. It is quite subtle. Uh, it is quite noticeable. The movement uh, aspect is quite discernible. The temperature differences are quite discernible because of our, the subtlety of our mucuses. Um, 
it's psychologically less charged. Yeah? A nose is generally, uh, even if you're highly traumatized, noses are generally safer grounds to go to than somewhere in your abdomen. So there may be good reasons to choose a nose as well. So for those of you who are more familiar or feel more at ease there. But part of plan A, besides identifying which exercise you're doing, is identifying where your anchor is. And then you're doing this. So that's plan A. Plan B is what happens when you notice you're not doing it. When you, you know, It's your agreement with yourself what you do when you notice you're not doing plan A. So, and that is important also because it is plan B that protects plan A. So plan B, uh, my blueprint for your plan B looks something like that. When I notice I am not on plan A, I kindly but resolutely bring back my attention. I exert choice and say, this was a very fine thought, but right now we're going back to the belly or to the nose. Uh, I take my straying mind, whom I do not reproach for straying, because that's what minds are famous for. That's what has given you good marks in school. Appropriate types of straying are called associative thinking and uh, lateral networking. And this is generally graded well. So we can't really uh, reproach our minds from doing this. Uh, plus a little bit of pleasure seeking and pain avoidance and a little bit of derivative babbling. Uh, are to be expected. So please do not reproach your mind from doing this sort of thing, but go into sort of a motherly, fatherly stance, take your mind's hand uh, as you would of a child and say, come, come look here, yeah, and lead it back to the breath or to your anchor area. So plan B entails a little bit of discipline, entails a little bit of method, sobriety, honesty, this kind of thing, and the willingness to interrupt yeah. Plan A doesn't need a lot of will. Plan A just needs subtleness and relationship and continuity and attunement and gentle staying with. Yeah. That's usually not accomplished by a lot of will. Yeah. A lot of will is generally slightly um, irksome there. But plan B does need your will. It does need your willingness to say no. It does need your willingness to say, well, this actually feels like a distraction right now and it's definitely not what I've agreed with myself so it needs a little bit of an honor code now important is that that honor code and your willingness to discipline uh, in terms of coming back does not translate into punitive measures or authoritarian rule or um, uh, barking orders in the voice of some internalized uh, grim introject you may have picked up somewhere along the lines like we all have. So it's important that you do that plan B thing kindly and friendly, in friendly ways. Again, the art is being clear and consistent and friendly and disciplined without being harsh and sharp and punitive or pugnacious or so. Yeah. So ponder this and uh, let us practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.